In business and life, relationships are everything. Welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, where we interview top business leaders and learn how they build relationships with their teams, clients, and those that promote and refer them. Here's your host, business trainer and leader of the People Catalyst team, Carla Nelson. And welcome to the People Catalyst Podcast, my co-host, Alan Fadden. Hello, Carla. Hello, hello. Always great to uh, jump on the podcast with you. And uh, this, is. this last week, we have had quite a few listeners uh, connecting with us and asking questions in regards to generating big ideas. And of course, this is really important in your business to be different. To, everybody talks about uh, market uh, share in differentiating yourself within the market, but really, how do you separate yourself from your competition so that you're being paid attention to by your marketplace? Yeah, and probably the first thing is, why would you even want to do that? And people don't really give good reasons. They just say, oh yeah, you must be differentiated, highly differentiated. <laughs> well, why? Why should I be, you know, especially to a later adopter, meaning a prover or a maker? Why would I want to do that? Well, here's a good one. Uh, a man named Doug Hall, ex-Procter & Gamble guy, did research. He did a study of about 900 marketing journal studies just to see what, what contributed most to results. And here's what he found, that there are three things. And if you do these three things well, you will get, listen to this one, 240 times the result, not 240%, which is a much smaller number, 240 times the results you would have gotten if you didn't do these three things well. So what are the three things? Good to know. One, of course, dramatic difference. If you are dramatically different, if you are doing what the other person's not to do, doing, if you're a category of one because you're so different, uh, that makes a huge difference. That's number one. Number two is overt benefit. To the, to the reader says, don't make me think. Don't tell me drills. Tell me about the hole I want to put in my wall. Make it easy for me. <laughs> overt, overt. Make it clear what the benefit is, not just the feature. And uh, the third one, reason to believe. Prove your case. Show me some evidence or else I'm not going to believe you. Now, a lot of you might think, oh, that last one, that's probably the most important thing, proving the case. Well, so here's another little piece of data on that. Of the three, dramatic difference, overt benefit, and reason to believe, the, the most important one of this, which creates about 55% of the results, the total result, is dramatic difference. That accounts for 55% of that 240 times the results. Overt benefit and reason to believe combine for only 45%. So big, big difference in the, in the effect of being dramatically different. So, um, so that's a, a, an amazing piece and well worth doing. Well, in, in Alan, you bring up a good point because you don't hear Doug Hall's work nearly as much as we hear frequently, you know, everyone talks about the blue ocean strategies and uncontested market space, but what they don't understand in this often, even if they've uh, read the book is that what is the difference? What does that mean? right, within their business that, you know, what is this uncontested market space? Yeah, and this is the, based on the research of Renee Maborn and uh, Chan Kim, and what they did was they studied companies 
who had at least one one operation that played in uncontested market space. Now, what does that mean? The, nobody liked them. They 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 are uh, a category of one. Uh, and, and by the way, they had trouble finding them. Only 14% mm -hmm. of the companies even have a business unit that plays in uncontested market space. Now, <clears throat> what they wanted to see was, is there really an advantage to that? And so here's what they come up with. And if you can imagine a little, uh, three little pie charts in a row. So 14% of the companies play in uncontested market space. Now, what are the benefits? These 14% of the companies account for 38 percent of the revenue 38 percent mm -hmm. so more than twice as much as their their share of the of the companies is their share of the revenue and then third pie chart over they account for 61 percent of the profits okay so yeah. another way of saying that is that they, you, you can principally double your revenue and if you're in a stable category, especially by getting twice your share of the revenue and quadruple your, your profits by getting uh, four times share of the profits. You know, I know we do the math, challenge me on that, but you get the idea. It's a significant, <laughs> significant thing. I'm math, math impaired. Even if uh, it's a portion of that it's such a significant it's you know as putting it in your terms it's the juice like where are you going so that you can make the most effective uh, increase in your revenue in your profits with the least amount or just prioritizing right dramatic difference over benefit reason to believe dramatic difference being 55 percent of that and blue ocean strategy is saying hey what puts you into this uncontested market space is this you know, being absolutely different when you are within this market space. You, you know, you are using a resource you're already paying for your people. You're using a resource that doesn't cost anything, your brain. So put in a little more time about thinking about how you can be dramatically different and it can pay you uh, riches. Uh, and it's easier. That's the funny thing. Usually that's when everybody's doing the thing that they like best and uh, allowing, uh, you know, your idea people to do what they do best and then how to find the best idea in regards to that uncontested market space and then implementing that. And you know what, this reminds me as we're talking of a little company and the reason why we use really companies that everybody knows of because if we brought up a name of a company that nobody knew of that it wouldn't really help to explain um, you know what it is I know a lot of people use a lot of large corporations because people understand who they are what they are and they're typically using them but uber I didn't realize this but I was doing a study and one of my training companies and yes we are corporate trainers but uh, we're smart enough to know that we need training as well put us through a process where we uh, were researching different companies and I thought it was absolutely incredible I didn't really realize this is when Uber came around in San Francisco the taxi industry and I don't know which year this was that obviously makes an impact in the numbers so it's not about again the specific numbers but about the concept and they they estimated the taxi industry in San Francisco was the annual was somewhere around a hundred million dollars and uber then went into the taxi uh, you know they became a competitor 
and took over a huge market. I mean, now it's like 80% of the entire market, Uber controls of the taxi industry. But what they didn't realize is that by having a big idea, they ended up making the pie bigger. I think to date, Uber's uh, revenue in San Francisco is somewhere estimated just around 500 million. So think about that. They grew the pie. It's not even, you know, the old way of looking at, uh, especially because innovation, it seems it comes out of uh, obviously so much more quickly than it ever has, is that it it made the pie bigger. So it's not like, oh, you know, everybody knows TAM, right? Total available market and what we think we're going to get, right? And, and the percentage of the marketplace. That's kind of like the old way of looking at it. It's how can we make the market by the disruption and innovation that of the idea that we can actually create a market that's three times bigger than it was. I mean, and there's several ideas there, but Uber, it was, I didn't realize that they had such an effect on the actual pie, right? The size of the market. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, and that reminds me too, um, uh, you know, Alan, in, in, in your, uh, uh, um, the thinking about the opposite and using that strategy, you know, of, uh, of uh, taxi cabs are public. The opposite is taxi cabs are private, <laughs> right? That's right. And, and, and then, I, go ahead. Go ahead. And how do you make that, how do you make that idea happen? I mean, what the, uh, I want to just highlight for a second here the opposite because we're going to be talking about it a little bit more because it's the principle that drives all big ideas. And think about this. What's the farthest distant conceptually you can go from anything? Well, it's the opposite. And so uh, you can analyze a lot of ideas. If an idea really makes your heart sing, take a look at it. Pull, pull it apart. Usually there's an opposite in there, especially when it's startlingly new. Mm-hmm. Well, I can see how that would buck the status quo. And it's almost like it creates dissonance. So you get attention. You're like, wait a second. I thought it was this way the whole time. And you're shifting Absolutely. the gears. You're shifting the gears. And usually, like anything else these days, it's technology that made that happen. I mean, can you imagine uh, uh, if you've ever used Uber, Lyft, any of these services, the software is the, is the killer part of the app. You can see where your, your vehicle is at any given time. Oh, they're turning left on uh, 15th Street. They'll be here. They're two blocks away. They'll be here in a couple of minutes. Whereas you used to call a cab, you had no idea if it was going to come, when it was going to come, and even if it was going to come. <laughs> Do you know how many planes I missed over the years because of that? And I will never forget. I was at staying at one of my clients' home in, um, well, it was a rental, but it was this big, beautiful home in, in Kauai, and it was a gated fence. And I was so afraid that I was going to be left by the taxi cab driver because you just sit there and sweat, right? You're like, oh, am I going to be able to get back? Are you going to pick me yeah. up? So, of course, couldn't get in the fence, even though I completely planned this thing out, everything, talked to them personally, right? Because it was a fear of mine because there's not a lot of gated communities in Kauai and missed my flight. (laughs) So That was just the biggest one because I really, really, really needed to get out of there. There was a wonderful uh, uh, person that helped me finally skip. I had to take four planes back, but at least I got back to the stays because I had something to get to. But exactly, think about, you know, that think about how the technology changed everything associated with it, everything that we were used to, you know, it flipped its on on its head, right? And so most people, 
it's not about that you can't generate big ideas because it would have been easy for someone to say, hey, look, maybe we could have all outsourced people run the cabin or the taxi industry. But you do have to spend that space in generating all those ideas and generating and generating. But you also have to figure out how do you get this big idea done? And the bigger idea you have, the harder it is to get it done. And, you know, that's why most businesses don't disrupt industries. And if you have a lot of money in your back pocket, you have a lot of time to be able to waste or mistakes to be made. And you're really, truly a pioneer. But, you know, when you're backed with, you know, a lot of cash, you've got a lot more time to be a lot more, um, you know, and I don't want to say wasteful at all, because it's not even intentional. It's just that you're being a pioneer and you're running with a big idea. And so going back to the hoodoo method, you know, there's only 15% of the population who actually says yes to any idea um, with the shaker. You know, if it's not their idea, they aren't going to be interested in it. And with approver, you know, there's always too much wrong with it, you know, and, and, and they might not even voice it. It's just, oh, that's just too disruptive for me. And you haven't thought of all the things it's going to blow up and we're never going to get done anyway. And then with a maker, it disrupts literally their entire world because they live in a process world. And you just came to me with something that's not completely vetted and processed and there's not the checklist associated with it. And um, actually not, we're talking about makers and trying to get an idea done. Alan, that reminds me of the time you were working with that minor, uh, baseball league. This is the, one of the funniest stories I've got, we've collected quite a few over the years, but, um, this story cool. about, um, the maker, it, I'll just go ahead. You, you gotta tell it because it's funny. Yeah. It's, you know, when you're, so I'm a shaker. And so that's a person that I understand least in this world. We're, we're not just opposites. We're from like other planets. <laughs> and uh, so we did a test uh, about a baseball cap that was going to sell as merchandise for the team. And uh, it was a very successful research test in a large shopping mall. And the the thing just blew the doors off. I mean, sold beautifully. And I was excited about it. And I said, that is great news because uh, this particular design was one I really loved. And uh, so I said, well, uh, to the guy who's the maker, he's in charge of the hats. And uh, I said, so uh, how many are you going to order? And there's this silence on the other end. He says, well, I'm not going to order any of those. I said, what do you mean? You're not going to order any of those? He says, I said, they, they, they tested really well. He says, oh, yeah, that's just the problem. Said, oh, no, no, I'm totally lost. I said, what do you mean that's the problem? You know, I thought that was good news. He said, oh, no, no. Look, if I order more of those, they're going to sell out right away, right? And then I'm just going to have to order more. I'm going to be ordering those things all the time. And I just kind of, I just kind of, I'm not speechless very often, but I was speechless. You could, I'm sure, hear my draw, jaw drop at the other end of the phone. And I just sort of said, okay, goodbye. And I just sort of went away muttering. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> that one always gets me because I can't even believe, like, if I was the owner of that team and I was like, did that person just say that? It's just interesting how we respond to different things differently. But of course, you know, as we always say, people are different. And so, you know, the challenge isn't that there are a lack of big ideas. It's that the, 
we have a lack to the process to implement those big ideas. And with the hoodoo method and, and, and our methodology that we would just love everybody to get their hands on so that they didn't have to go to frustrating meetings and they could implement their big ideas and put their dent on the universe. And there's really this magic to it that nobody gets to say no. So, you know, what, what the process does is allows the idea, ideation or idea process identify the right idea to run with. And then because nobody gets to say no, the provers do get to attack specifically what could go wrong in implementing a big idea, but that's powerful because you fail the idea in a concept form. And so, you know, once you have a method, then you can apply it to generating big ideas. And there's a lot of different things we've learned over the years. Actually, I was, I think I was in fourth grade and I was in a, they put me in some gifted program. And I remember when they created or taught us the concept of brainstorming. And I loved it. I was like, oh, this is great. So, and, and as you all know, brainstorming is a method that is used to have no judgment in generating ideas. Well, <laughs> except for, you know, the occasional eye roll and any other nonverbal communication that we absolutely ensure. And if it happens, obviously everybody has to leave the room at certain times because we all have our strengths and the stronger we are in what we believe, the stronger we respond when we're trying to implement a new idea. And so you have to ask yourself on the entire team, who are you having generating these ideas? And, and everybody can brainstorm, but there's people that have a great strength in looking at things in such a different way that they're, they're 10 years ahead of even other early adopters. And so after those ideas that are generated, and not that they're always good ones, right? Uh, but who chooses the best idea or combination of ideas? And then how do you fail that idea in concept form? before you even get started? Do you run through a process to ensure you obtain buy-in from the entire team? Oh my gosh, I was horrible about that, Alan. Oh my gosh, I launched my first company. Ooh, my poor team members. You know, I was really young, but uh, if I would have known that and understood that I needed buy-in uh, from the entire team, I would have been even more successful sooner because I, I would feel bad there. It happened to be this gridlock, right? And it was simply because I didn't slow down in order to speed up. And then after you get the buy-in, first you have to have a process to get it, but then after you obtain the buy-in, and that's by everybody putting their thumbprint on the process, how do you implement the idea by using a method that creates the boundaries of the team through the agreed rules of engagement and keeping them all in their strength lanes. Cause that's, that's actually really challenging keeping them in their strength lanes because uh, you know, and, and we've talked about this several times and, and probably 80% of the time when we're working on something very specific in a business, we physically have to have people leave the room when they're not, when we're not working at that time with, you know, in the goal. Uh, and what I mean by that is if we're working on a project, and it's time to create ideas, then a lot of times before it even comes out of someone's mouth, someone's already shooting down or wants to discuss it. And so obviously we teach and we teach and we teach, but we, you know, it, everywhere we go, there we are. We can't deny who we are. And instead of focusing on what someone's not, 
we focus on what they are. But if you're trying to generate a big idea, the worst thing that you can do is have somebody that's going to knock the idea down before you ever even get all the ideas out on the paper. And so brainstorming did about 10% of the process. <laughs> and so it's really important that understanding a complete process that takes you from um, the, the idea to choosing the best idea to failing it uh, in concept form to doing that as many times as necessary. And then when you have the most well thought out plan, then you call the maker. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, it kind of reminds me what Deming said, Alan. How does that, yeah. how does that go? People don't, people don't fail. Processes fail. And he originally said 85% of failure is process failure. And then he revised it later on after he did more work with more large companies to 94%. 94% of failure is, is process failure. And, and the way that we do things, our processes uh, are, are full of failure. And so if we just fix that process, imagine what can happen. And then, you know, let's respect the people. And if you have the right process, it respects who people are and when is the time to get them involved and when should they hand off and to whom. Man, even just listening to that. And Alan, we've been saying this for years and years and years about 94% of failures, process failure, not people failure. But how horrible to me when I hear that, I just think, oh my gosh, failure. And the fact that it's just not allowing people to step into their strengths and asking them to work in a way that's not beneficial to them, that's not beneficial to the team. I mean, that's just, to me, that's actually one of my biggest whys is because, you know, I'm probably being the mover. It's even more important because I want to get things done. I want everyone else to be able to get things done. And failure, although is a part of the process, it doesn't have to own you. I mean, 90% of startups fail. That is such a dismal number. 94% of failure being process failure, all you need are the right processes because people do want to be on a winning team. They do want to make a difference. And, you know, I want to take a step back here for a second and where, where we started um, this whole talk about big ideas and focusing on creating those big ideas. Because I think we've really identified that the big ideas are important. Everybody wants a big idea. It's not just the big idea, it's implementing the big idea. But I do wanna take a step back and kind of talk a little bit about the things they could do. And th so this might be a little bit of shaker training, okay? of how do you identify those big ideas and come up and generate a whole bunch of them. Uh, and for the rest of the podcast, let's just drop off picking out the big ideas and running with the process. Because of course, we don't want to discuss how to create these big ideas and then not let you know that, hey guys, that's only a part of the process. But for right now, let's just go ahead and take a step back, Alan, because I know the shakers out there will probably love to hear some uh, strategies and the best practice to be able to generate what they're naturally doing, but then walk away with something that really has, uh, as you always say, the juice around it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and the beautiful thing is that once you have this hoodoo process, which allows you to implement big ideas, that's when the demand for big ideas can really be meaningful. So I want to share with you a couple of things. Let's just assume you are going to be able to take a look at some of this and be able to implement ideas better and 
bigger ideas and know how to deal with resistance and everything, which this helps you do. So therefore, how do you get big ideas? And we previewed it earlier on. It's based on a simple principle. It's based on the principle of opposites. And it's the exact same thing as being different. If you wanna be different, see what everybody else is doing and do the opposite. Now that's overly simple, right? It sounds way too simple, but this one of my favorite quotes is from Judge Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, for simplicity on this side of complexity, I give not a whit for simplicity. However, mm -hmm. on the other side of complexity, I would gladly give my life. <laughs> so it's, it's, this is one of those ideas that simpli simplicity on the other side of complexity. And so a couple things to understand. Uh, Arthur Kessler wrote a book in 1961 called The Act of Creation, where he, he defined a, an interesting way to create. You know, we actually don't create. Everything's already created. So what we do is make new combinations of elements, let's say, that haven't been together before. And so we don't create, he says, we combine. Mm. So what are you combining? Take two elements like salt and pepper and eh, nothing. They've been together a billion times before. Uh, take two elements that are very far apart from each other, don't belong together, and don't make any sense. And that's what's called comedy. And you can pay attention to a lot of comedians, and that's what they do all of the time. They take some opposites, they rub them together. And the release for that is laughter. Mm -hmm. But the same principle applies to instead of ha-ha, how about an aha reaction? And that's when you combine two elements together, haven't been together before, like uh, private drivers and software to, to pick up writers, where you go, aha, that's a fusion of opposites. And that is the source of a big idea. Uh, now, the easy route is just see what everybody's doing when they zig, you zag. You do the opposite. There's a, one of my favorite quotes is from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, uh, the opposite of any given trend is worth a fortune to somebody. Okay? Mm, and people make yeah. a lot of money that way. Cyclical change. Hemlines go up, they go down. Hairstyles get short, they get long, they get short again. Uh, lapels uh, get wide, they get narrow, they get wide again. So everything, uh, many changes are cyclical changes. So what we can do here is use opposites to come up with a big idea or a game changer in your marketplace. One of my favorite questions is to somebody in a company, and, and we use this quite a bit, as you know, Carla, is if you were your worst competitor, how would you put you out of business? Mm. And oh, that's a thinking great, on the right, the re, right track. Re, you need to say that again. That is such a great, it just yeah. shifts as a, you know, being a shaker, you're going to be better with that and, and other shakers will too. But yeah. say that again, Alan. That's brilliant. If you were your worst competitor, how would you put you out of business? Imagine you're starting a company to compete with our company. What would you do? And then once you know what that is, do it. Do it first. Andy Grove uh, would not have uh, invented the Celeron chip, which was a much lower, lower price chip, if he had not believed that that was a threat. So figure out what the threats to your company are going to be and then do those first. And it's usually the opposite of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So that can be extremely powerful. So let's Although do an I, illustration I, of this. Go ahead. I am going to jump in a little bit because it is the mover that gets to uh, combine and pick 
the initial idea. It could still fail, but <laughs> I was just teasing you because you said when you know what to do, do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know how those and use the hoodoo. Go, yeah, exactly. So I, uh, I love that. I love that. But such, well, it was just such a great way of looking at things and shifting things and having those questions associated with how to come up with those great ideas. So. And, and once you're aware of this, you'll find that there are opposites everywhere. And you just got to be more attuned to uh, look for them. So, uh, so let, me, let me do a little quiz for you. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, one of the great uh, directors of our, our time, uh, wanted to make a murder scene more powerful, more grisly, more gruesome than ever before. So he came up with an opposite to do it. What was that opposite? Got any uh, ideas? Opposite of gruesome? Well, you know, one of the, <laughs> it makes me think of not a murder scene so much, but uh, I'm just an opposite of that of, because most murder scenes are gruesome, it might be to make it more either funny or, you know, normally it's, there's blood and everything like that. Maybe not you know, make, make it up to your, your mind to think about what actually happened and not necessarily see, you know, chainsaws and blood because uh, the movies that I don't like are the ones that kind of show too much, you know, versus yeah. like my, it's almost like a book versus a movie, right? What the book is almost always better. Why? Because you're creating it. Your imagination. Mind. Yeah. Your imagination. Well, in Jaws, they didn't show you the shark uh, oh, so that you could really see it till almost the end of the movie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so what Kubrick did was a little closer to what you're first talking about. Imagine a murder scene, scene that's the visual, and what other element do we have? The audio. So, he mm -hmm. took the visual, which was gruesome, and he played it to happy music. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember this, but uh, the guy was uh, killing a guy, and as he was as he was delivering blows to the guy he was killing, he was singing, singing in the ranges, singing in the rain. So here's oh a happy gosh. song played to a, a murder scene. Now, the, the left brain, where we are a lot, can't deal with the paradox. And, it, and it, the left brain is like a pig. It wants to decide either this or that. Well, what are you gonna decide on? A murder scene is happy because it's happy music, or it's even more gruesome because of this contradiction that's going on in that's your face. That's a dissonance that I, I never used that yeah. term before in all the work we've done, but that's a dissonance. And it's like, it's creating something in your mind that you just don't, don't want to accept. But it's, but it's yeah. good because it's creating friction and it's creating attention. And it's, and it's creating something new that wasn't there before. Yeah. Now I'm going to give you some data that supports that. And one of the things is a man named Charles Smith studied 88 geniuses, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, Einstein, Tesla. And he found they all had one thing in common. They were very different in a lot of ways, but they had one thing in common, which was the ability to deal with contradictions. And they'd find something contradictory and they'd elevate it, elevate it, elevate it till at some high level of wisdom, it fused together and became a new idea or a new principle. And so there's one way to do it. Deal with the paradox, accept both sides of it, and then, and then balance it and play with the paradox and keep elevating it as much as you can. Because that's where the power is in that contradiction. So now, here's another opportunity. 
when we were talking about do something, uh, see what everybody's doing and do the opposite, like the Fitzgerald quote. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a book by Thomas Kuhn came out in 1962 called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And what he said, I love this. And, you know, this is like right in the headlines of today, practically. <laughs> oh, no kidding. The, the scientists would uh, make their living off of data. You know, they'd study the data. <clears throat> and so what, what they, some didn't know was that about at any given time, 50% of the data will contradict the scientific theory of the day, and 50% of the data <laughs> will agree with it. So, Just think about that for a second. Yeah. So the, the, so the things that we accept as truth, very well, 50% of the people say it is, and 50% of the, or scientists, you should say, or 50% don't. That's quite interesting. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was a big, that's why, according to Kuhn, all the scientific uh, rev breakthroughs are all revolutions because, uh, you know, at some, uh, a few centuries ago, people found out, Hey, wait a minute. You mean the earth isn't the center mm -hmm. of the universe and the sun isn't uh, traveling around the earth? No, it's the earth is traveling yeah. around well, the sun. And you can just rewind that a little bit. The, I mean, and I say a little bit, but 1600s, Oh, the earth is flat. You're going to fall off the end of it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Oops, surprise, surprise. Bye-bye. So 50% so of, uh, of, of the data that, that agrees with the scientific theory of the day, the scientists study it, they uh, write papers, they present the papers at symposiums, they give each other awards. And then the other 50%, guess what they do with that? Throw it in the garbage? They ignore it. <laughs> they just don't pay any attention. No, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Yeah. So. Um, that's why it's always such a surprise when when something big like that is discovered. Well, it was there all the time. Yeah. So that's why doing the opposite can help hasten this revolution. You can lead that revolution if you can find that uh, that opposite. Oh, I love it. Well, you know, we'll have to wrap it up here uh, in, in the next couple moments. But as you were telling that story, and is about opposites. Okay. I didn't even want to admit when uh, Alan and I first started working together that I used to actually hang those motivational posters in my office. They were all around them. I still have them, right? The, uh, <laughs> everybody knows these motivational posters, right? And I loved it because I am a big teamwork person. I'm a big, you know, mindset person and they inspired me. So I loved them. However, when after I met Alan, the very first thing, the very first time he was sharing some of, uh, he, he actually created uh, the demotivational poster. So if you've ever seen these guys, you, it, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. And I love them both for completely different reasons. But Alan, Alan you've got to share the story about the demotivational poster. Yeah, well, see, I, I never liked those. I, I mean, I appreciated them because the, you know, the they had the big, beautiful photograph and a black border and well, then a single they were, word. They were, they were right elegant. The beginning, they became cliche, and that was the problem. Right. It was when it didn't mean anything anymore. And I agree with you. So, yeah. but but at first it was great, but man, over time it was like everywhere. And you're like, do you really think that me working together with my team is going to change because there's a stupid poster on the wall? So <laughs> I, I totally, I'm totally getting you with that, but <laughs> go ahead. So what a shaker does, and I'm a shaker, is uh, if I don't like something, I don't 
generally complain about it. I just do something that's like a mockery or a parody or a satire or whatever. And so uh, I came up with this idea to do uh, demotivational posters and they would look almost exactly the same, uh, but we would change a few things so we didn't get a lawsuit for which is called a trade dress lawsuit. We wouldn't fool people into thinking this is the, the original motivational poster, uh, but they looked enough alike it. And so what you do is you take one little thing, one little part of it, and you change it to the opposite. And so for the demotivational poster, imagine a beautiful blue sky with this black background around it. And then underneath it says, give up. <laughs> then underneath give up, it says, you're a loser. No motivational crap's going to change that. <laughs> Oh my so, gosh, this is so, awesome. Uh, but you know so what's funny? when we speak, oh, go ahead. No, I was just saying like, that, that is just so awesome that, you know, the opposite can evoke a completely different emotion, right? So think about that. It's not even the opposite of like the poster or whatever. It's the opposite of going, one going, wow, I can put my doubt on the universe. And the other one going just, oh my gosh, there's some truth into that. And that's pretty darn hilarious. Yeah. And, and, and actually people who like the motivational posters think it's pretty funny too, because just because they're open to a different point of view. Um, so, uh, but what interesting thing is, uh, of course, we use the hoodoo method to, to get this done because for me, a shaker is just enough to have the idea and I'd present the idea and say, hey, look how cool I am. Look at this idea. <laughs> and then of course, uh, you find a mover and they say, you idiot, why don't you do this? You know, and so uh, this happened to be a guy who knew uh, one of the principals at uh, uh, one of the largest card companies in the country. And uh, this is how long ago it was. He faxed them the idea and they faxed back a five-year contract and they turned down a thousand ideas a week. They just thought this was pretty funny. So one of the things that happened was that the provers got involved and they said especially about one design they said uh oh no 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 you can't do that one there is no way because that has a, a bad word it's a word you can't say on television so i'm going to do a little uh, alert anybody who's got uh, who doesn't like bad words is probably ought to shut it off for fast forward a little bit so uh, what happened we had this this one design and uh, and we, we liked it except for one person, the prover, and the prover said, oh, no, you can't do that. You're going to offend people. And then so then we went back to the mover, this is the part of the process, and the mover said, well, what do we care if we offend a few people? We don't have any business anyway. We're starting from zero. What do we have to lose? And it's funny, and uh, I think we should go with it. So we went with it, and it turned out to be our bestseller. And, really? Isn't that amazing? And it's a beautiful photo of these penguins. They're on an ice floe, probably in Antarctica. Gorgeous photo. And it says diversity, you know, because they're wearing black and white and penguins do those little tuxedos. And uh, so one word, diversity. And then underneath it says black, white, gay, straight. You're still an asshole. <laughs> so I didn't realize that, that was a bestseller. Yeah, that was the best-selling one of the whole of the whole bunch. Yeah, that's you know why? That's because people don't use the hoodoo method and they can't stand each other and they're choking each other as they're trying to get something done. And so well, and, and, a motivational poster on the wall thinking that's actually going to change the culture. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, that's so. Uh, 
my favorite new one is because uh, it, it, it's uh, you know we all travel a lot and it's uh, um, go for it. That's pretty motivational, isn't it? Go for it. And then underneath it says profound. The journey of a thousand miles starts with the TSA looking up your butt. So, <laughs> oh my God, I, I think, that was obviously post nine eleven. Yeah. Yes. Yes, definitely. That's a that's a newer one. So there's a there's a whole bunch of them. But the the point is, this is clearly clearly opposites, and it's and it's a just a a, a very very uh, poignant example of how you can just change one element to the opposite and create something that attracts a lot of attention. Fortune magazine wrote this up, and some of you uh, have seen the despair.com website and. Uh, that wasn't us, but we were, they admitted we were four months ahead of them. That's and, incredible. Uh, so well, we I invented always... the demotivational poster. Yeah. Congratulations. No, I just, <laughs> you know, I love it. I love it. I always love the wonderful time we have uh, together, Alan, your stories and our, the work that we've done in the past and the difference that we get to make in uh, entrepreneurs, business owners, and uh, corporate America. And I just always enjoy our time together and our listeners. Me too. I hope you get to understand a little bit about creating big ideas and how important it is to find your shakers and put them in a space that they are doing what they love. So with that said, just remember, it's not just the people, it's their chemistry. Thank you for listening to the People Catalyst podcast. And remember, it's a good life. 